0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 4. I'm going to read from verses 27 to verse 38. Would you please follow along with me in your Bibles? John chapter 4, verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and were marveling that he was speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you speaking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? Then they went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Even now he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. This is the word of the Lord we're focusing on this morning. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. You may be seated. Father, thank you for uh, the promise that you are indeed making all things new. You declare in Revelation 21, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And uh, Lord, it's so tempting to look around at the world and feel that things are not being made new. They're being further and further degraded before our eyes. But Lord, in your wisdom and in your sovereignty, you are working all things after the counsel of your holy will to the end, that everything would find its rightful place in submission to Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you for that. I thank you that you've brought us as believers to the point where we have submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, and we seek to live our lives for his glory and in a manner that's consistent with that profession of faith and our allegiance to Jesus as King. Father, for those in this room who have not yet been brought by your spirit to bow before Jesus in, in saving faith, I pray that you would do that great work today. or that you would even here in this room gather in fruit for life eternal. Uh, or we do pray that you would use us in this world to enter into the harvest or to look upon the world and all of its suffering and all of its pain and all of its depravity. That we would look upon the world and not see it as a a, a body of sinners worthy of being destroyed. But rather a body of sinners worthy of being redeemed for the glory of your name. To exalt your saving power. To magnify your greatness and your truth, Lord Jesus. We pray for new eyes to look upon the world with compassion the way you did to see it as a harvest and to have wisdom to know how to engage with the world so that we might reap in that harvest, that you might receive your wages, that we would be part of that work of gathering fruit for your glory. Father, we pray you would work this in our lives this morning. Help us, equip us so that we might go forward out of this building and into all the various places where you've called us to live and spread the good news of Jesus as Messiah, while you extend your hand and perform the signs and wonders of bringing in the harvest with your powerful word. Lord, we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as I mentioned uh, last week, we're coming to the end of this first main segment of the Gospel of John, which ends at the end of chapter 4. Um, and really what we're seeing in this chapter are various things that Jesus as the Messiah came to do. What, what did he come into this world in order to accomplish? What was his purpose? And uh, we've seen that uh, demonstrated in various ways. In John chapter 2, we see that Jesus came with the purpose of bringing in a new temple, uh, for his people to worship God in that new temple of His body, as Jesus said, we've seen uh, He came to bring in the fullness of the new birth prophesied by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We, in, uh, in his discussion with Nicodemus, we saw that really focused on at the end of John chapter three. We see that Jesus came in order to take His new covenant bride, right? That bride that. The book of Hosea spoke about. Uh, Jesus came to bring that bride into that saving relationship with God. And then we've seen in John chapter 4 that Jesus as Messiah came to introduce new covenant worship to every single member of the new covenant. Now today we're going to continue looking at this final part that John chapter 4 lays before us concerning the purpose of the Messiah which is the Father's will for His Son to bring salvation to people from among all nations. This is the Father's will for His Son. It was made very abundant and clear, uh, expressed. uh, It was abundantly expressed and made very clear through the prophets. So Isaiah 66, verse 18, for example, it says that the time is coming Yahweh says, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and they shall see my glory. Well, that's what we're looking at in the gospel of John, isn't it? We're looking at God's glory revealed in his son. And here in John chapter four, we have the son unveiling the glory of God before the Samaritans. And then before the chapter ends, we see him doing that before Gentiles. And so there is a harvest of souls in this world, chosen from among every nation and tongue. And Jesus' great work is the work of seeing those souls gathered into his kingdom. right? Going out, reaping the harvest of souls from the world, and gathering them into his barn. Before that day of judgment comes and burns up the chaff. Jesus' food, His aim, His purpose is to do the will of His Father, to gather in all nations, not for destruction, but for salvation. That was something that the disciples didn't yet understand. That was what the Jewish people did not yet understand about their Messiah, that He was not coming this time to destroy the world. He was coming to save the world. It's the glory of John 3, 16 and 17. He came for... Sinners to redeem them so that before his throne, in the day of his glory, he will have his full reward from the Father's end, which is a redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, joining together to sing with one voice the song of the Lamb. Isn't that glorious? I can't wait to be a part of that, to see and experience for myself the glory of that moment. Beloved, it's coming. Amen. It's coming. Now, though this is just a foretaste of the fulfillment of of that great purpose, in a real sense, Jesus begins doing that work here in John chapter 4. Now, what we're going to see today, though, is that the disciples didn't have a clue that this is what Jesus was doing as they journeyed through Samaria. They didn't understand why they had to go through Samaria. They didn't grasp the glory or the magnitude of the saving work that the Messiah came to do. And so they failed to join with the Messiah in fulfilling his father's work. And so what we see really in verses 31 through 38 of John chapter 4 is Jesus rebuking his disciples for their spiritual dullness. Jesus had sent his disciples on a mission into the city of Sychar, but they not only had failed to accomplish that mission, they failed even to recognize what that mission was. And that's really what Jesus is focusing on here. Now, we remember in verse 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, And then Jesus unpacks that more fully in verse 36 when he describes doing the will of the one who sent him as the work of reaping a harvest of souls and receiving wages as the reaper and gathering in fruit from this world of sinners for life eternal. And then verses 29 through 30 of John chapter 4 shows us that even at this moment, Jesus was using the now converted Samaritan woman... To bring eternal life to a whole city of Samaritans, so he's doing his father's work. That's his food. That's what he is about. Now, verses 31 through 38 interrupts this whole scene with the Samaritan woman in the city of Sychar by focusing on uh, a discussion between Jesus and his disciples. Now, it's obvious that the Apostle John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is presenting this scene as a contrast between what the disciples did when they entered the city and returned to Jesus and what the Samaritan woman is doing as she has now entered the city and is returning to Jesus. So there's this contrast that's being presented to us here in John chapter 4 between what the disciples did, or we might say between what the disciples didn't do, And what the Samaritan woman now is doing. So there's this picture being presented there. This woman was so overwhelmed with joy over the fact that she had finally found the Messiah that she went back to tell the whole city about him. And Jesus was using that testimony to gather in these Samaritans into his kingdom. And at that very moment, she was on her way back with the whole city full of souls in tow. She's bringing all of these Samaritan people from the city of Sychar back to see Jesus for themselves, right? What did the disciples bring back with them from the city of Sychar for Jesus? Food. Bread, right? Right? What was the harvest that the disciples brought back to show Jesus? It was nothing but a harvest of bread. What is the harvest that this woman is bringing back to show Jesus? It's a harvest of souls. Now Jesus is crystal clear in verse 38. He says to his disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Now, just understanding what he's saying there, where did Jesus send these disciples? When he says, I sent you to reap, where did he send them? What's he talking about? The only place he has sent any of his disciples anywhere in the Gospel of John so far is into the city of Sychar. Right? John 4, verse 8, they went into the city to buy bread. Apparently, Jesus sent them into the city. And he says here in verse 38, I sent you into that city. And then he sent them into that city for a purpose. What is the purpose of sending them into that city? He says it right here in verse 38, it was so that they would reap a harvest. In other words, Jesus didn't send them into the city just so that they would go buy him bread. Jesus didn't send them into the city of of these Samaritans just so that they would be focused on the physical needs of the moment. Jesus sent them into the city to reap a harvest for His namesake to declare the glory of the Messiah. The Messiah has come. Come see Him. There was a whole city that was ripe for the picking, and Jesus sent His disciples into that city to go pick them. Now, the heart of his rebuke is really in verse 35 of John chapter 4, where Jesus says to his disciples, do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields and see that they are white for harvest. See, the disciples knew in the natural realm how to discern when the fields, the physical fields, were ready to be reaped. They could look out on the fields of wheat and they could see the head of the wheat turning white. It was time. It was ready to be gathered in. They could see that physically concerning the physical realm of life in this world. But they were dull spiritually. Their spiritual perception was so unrefined and so dull that they could not even see the spiritual harvest that was all around them and ready to be picked, ready to be reaped. They were so unattuned to the purpose of the Messiah that they had missed their opportunity to glorify Him in preaching about the Messiah to the city. Now, what we find here, Jesus really highlights, or we, anyway, we... In this text, we find the spiritual dullness of these disciples highlighted in a couple of ways. Number one, we see their spiritual dullness highlighted by the way they reacted when they saw Jesus speaking with this woman. In verse 27, when the disciples saw Jesus talking with this woman at this well, it says that they marveled that he was talking with a woman. In other words, they were troubled. They were bothered by the fact that Jesus was speaking with this Samaritan woman. They were offended that he was doing so. Now, that revealed not only on another level of prejudice that was at work here, right? I mean, you've got the prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans that's at work. But here, the focus is not on the fact that he was speaking with the Samaritan. The focus is on the fact that he was talking with a woman, So we've got this second level of prejudice that's at work in this whole story in John chapter 4. But then also, what we see in their concern over Jesus speaking with her is something far more troubling. What we see is not what they were concerned about. What we see revealed in that is what they were not concerned about. They were not concerned, in other words, for this woman's soul. Now, there are some cultural norms at work here that might be helpful for us to understand so that we can sense and get a grasp on what's going on. In this culture and time, women were not regarded very highly. Guys, most of you probably know that. Uh, It was actually seen as inappropriate for a man even to speak with a woman who was not his wife, and then on top of that, it wasn't even socially acceptable for a husband to speak to his wife in public. It was shameful. This was especially the case with someone who was viewed as a spiritual teacher. Uh, John Gill commented on this when he uh, quoted a, a common saying of the day. This was not John Gill's saying, but this was a saying among the rabbis of Jesus' day. They would say, The wise men say, At whatsoever time a man multiplies discourse with a woman, He is the cause of evil to himself, And ceases from the words of the law and at last shall go down into hell. That's pretty strong. That's a pretty strong uh, prejudice against women, is it not? Ultimately, the more you multiply words with a woman, the more you talk with a woman, the more danger you're putting your own soul in of hell. (laughs) That's pretty strong. Now, despite what that phrase claims, that is not what God's law taught about how women were to be viewed and treated, okay? According to God, women are actually not to be despised, not to be avoided and rejected, but they're actually to be cherished. Women are to be protected. Women are to be cared for. Women are to be valued, Women are to be highly esteemed and treated with respect as fellow image bearers of God. When God revealed his law in relation to the way women were to be treated, that was a radical departure from what the, what the world thought in relation to how women should be treated. He demanded equal justice for women. Did you know that? Protection and care. Trial before court system. The Lord demanded that women be cared for. But that's not how these disciples viewed women because that wasn't the way that the culture viewed women. They were actually offended by the fact that Jesus was speaking with her. Now this this shows that their priorities were clearly not in line with the priorities of Christ because Christ wasn't ashamed to speak with her. In fact, what do we see Christ doing with this woman in John chapter 4? He's not just spouting truths at her. He's reasoning with her. He's entering into a deep fellowship of dialogue with her. He's trying to gain her soul. The disciples were spiritually dumb when it came to seeing the full purpose of the Messiah. Now, by the way, I can't come across a passage like this in the Bible without addressing a topic of our own day. Let's be clear and honest with history. The history of the world is filled with this same kind of disdain and unjust treatment of women. It's been a cancer in the world that every society has experienced where Christianity has not taken root. Every society in the world experienced the cancer of prejudice against women except for those societies where Christianity took root. Historically, women have always been devalued and dishonored. And by the way, women in our country today are suffering from this all over again, just in a different form. Not because of those bigoted, chauvinistic, oppressive Christians who want to keep women in the home and have mothers doing nothing, you know, barefoot and holding a baby. That's the picture I get in my mind of what the world thinks Christians want for their women. No, that's not what's actually oppressing women in our day. Ironically, womanhood in our country is being devalued and dishonored by the very cultural movements that are promising them liberation. So, for example, the feminist movement of our day, whatever wave of feminism you want to talk about, it doesn't matter, all right? Whether we're on the third one or the eighth one or however many we get to, it doesn't matter. Every wave of feminism is an oppressive wave that sweeps over the women under it. It's it's actually strange and, and even ironic that a movement claiming to fight for the honor of women is itself a leading cause for their dishonor. How do they do that? What do I mean by that? Well, basically, the feminist movement dishonors women by changing what it means to be a woman. In essence, the feminist movement says that the only way to honor a woman is to treat her like a man. She is to be allowed and encouraged to do everything that a man can do. And then in some cases, she's to do more than what a man can do. Or else, she is still being oppressed and devalued and being held back from her full potential. Now, you know what happens whenever we define womanhood in those terms? When we think that a true woman is one who can do everything that a man can do. When we define womanhood like that, you know what we do. We not only degrade what what it means to be a man, but we destroy what it means to be a woman. You know, the beauty of being a real woman as presented in the Word of God, that is a precious thing that ought to be fought for. It ought to be held in high esteem. Women should be the most honored of people in our congregations and societies as Christians because of the importance of their work in fulfilling the Great Commission. Do you know how important and valuable the role of women is in the home? What does it matter if you gain the whole world and yet lose your families, right? God has entrusted such an important role of care and concern for children in the home and loving their husbands and supporting them and making them better men. You think any man in this room could be a true man according to God's desire apart from the woman that he has assigned to him? Now, if you're single, that's a unique calling. God is going to support you in that. He's going to uphold you. But those of us who are not that strong, those of us who are not called to be single, we have to have the woman that God has assigned to us in order to make us the good men we're supposed to be. Man, the power and the influence of a woman over a man. You know, just think about the influence that Eve had over Adam. Before Adam fell. Before Adam's mind was corrupted by sin. Eve still had the power to persuade him to come headlong into sin with her, with his eyes wide open. Adam was not deceived about what he was doing. That's the power that a woman has been entrusted with in her relationship with her husband. God expects her to use that well, not to abuse it, right? Now, that's tangential. I'm sorry. But... The beauty of real womanhood is to be upheld and honored. What's happening in our society is that the beauty of real womanhood is continuing to be degraded and despised. It's so backwards, and and, and you can tell that it's demonic by the effect that it's having. What, What has happened to society ever since women have abandoned their children to the public school setting or whatever other setting you want to put in there. When women have abandoned their children and the godliness of being a, being a true woman in the home, when they have abandoned that high calling and have gone out into the world to be captains of industry and to do the things that men do and to be Marines and to be on the front lines and to try to be a SEAL, when, when, when women have abandoned their God-ordained roles and pursued elements of, of life that were not for them, what has happened to society? It's crumbled. Look around at our nation today. Do you think that this nation is going to last without good, godly, strong women taking up their role and responsibility that God has given them? No, it's not going to last. It's already not lasting. God has made us with unique abilities and distinct roles as men and women. And the only way to honor manhood and the only way to honor womanhood is to uphold and respect our uniqueness. Not to conflate the two and make them them absolutely the same thing. That's not how God created us. Gender is not fluid. (laughs) There is a binary system that God has implanted upon or that has created mankind to exist in. And that is man and woman. But look at what Jesus is doing right here in this passage. He is upholding the dignity and the value and the beauty of womanhood simply by talking with this woman. How radical, right? What a radical departure from what society would call Jesus to do. The disciples were shocked that he was speaking with a woman. That didn't face Jesus. He's being a rebel in a sense <laughs> for the cause of righteousness. He's rebelling against societal norms and cultural prejudices. Just, hey, parentheses here. That's how you stand against the flow and the tide of an ungodly system of, or society. It's not by the great radical things, the, the monumental movements. It's not by affecting those. It's by being a faithful Christian in the day-to-day moments. That's where the power really comes from, to shape and change the world that's around us. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's creating, he's affecting this societal change by, by one simple action. Sitting down and speaking with this woman. And in doing doing that, he's restoring the dignity of her womanhood. Showing her that she's worth more than being some man's servant. Fetching water of a man who doesn't even respect and honor her enough to marry her. Jesus viewed her more highly than that. She, as a woman, is part of the Son of God's reward from the hand of his Father. And Jesus is joyfully and gladly receiving and restoring her to be a woman of God. You know, it's it's Christianity that has led to women being liberated from the real bondage of sin's destruction in this world. And it's because of what we see Things of like what we see here with Jesus interacting with this woman. That's, why, that's what has given rise to true restoration of women in the past. Now, the disciples didn't get it. They weren't concerned for her soul, with her coming to salvation, or with her being introduced to the Messiah. And so, praise the Lord that he did not leave that task in their hands. He called this woman to himself. Now, you know we can often fall into the same trap of prejudism, is that a right word? Prejudice. We can fall into that same trap of not realizing our Lord's harvest because of cultural and societal stigmas. For these disciples, it was women. Why is he speaking with a woman? For us, it could be any number of things. It could be the way a person looks, whether that's skin color, whether that's hairstyle, right? It could be the way that person dresses. It could be the way that person acts. It could be that person's interest. Probably for Christians today, the most stigmatized group would be the alphabet people, right? LGBTQ, XY plus two, whatever. Whatever. For Christians, that's, that's the most stigmatized group of people. Right? Only to be uh, maybe a close second, maybe tied, would be politicians. But. You know, this account here with this woman tells us that those things, whatever they are, those stigmas of society, they do not hinder Jesus from seeking their salvation. Those people's salvation. You know, this account here tells us that Jesus is, is going to seek after even those who are the most despised among societies for the glory of his name. I was in the gas station the other day. And if you guys don't know about holidays, excellent coffee. <laughs> that's like a third the price of Dumb Brothers. You need to figure that out. Really good coffee. Get their dark roast, it's excellent. Espresso, it's amazing. So I'm in, I, I stop in the gas station right up here at a holiday a few times a week and get some coffee. I was getting some coffee, I was standing in line at the checkout, and all of a sudden the the, the uh guy, the cashier, I guess, was uh speaking with the person in front of me about some new music that he had coming out. Now I didn't have to, uh, I, I really didn't have to think long about what kind of music that, that was going to be. Um, the way that this person was dressed, all of his tattoos, the, 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 the way he spoke, the tone and the, the intonations in his voice, everything, everything about him pointed to the fact that this guy's music probably wasn't going to be the kind of music that I would like or even really want to listen to. Right? Rap. It just degraded, nasty, sinful Rap. Uh, not as a not as a style, but anyway. So he starts talking about this, and I come up to the count, I, I'm Even as he's talking about it, I'm praying, like, Lord, please help me engage with this guy. Help me engage with this guy. I come up, and I, I just start, uh, I, I pick up on that song. His song's title was Phenomenal. And so he asks me, hey, man, how you doing today? I said, oh, dude, I'm doing phenomenal. And uh, <laughs> he, he kind of laughed. He goes, Ah oh, yeah, 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 you got it. You got it. I said, yeah, man, yeah, so... So I, I promise I'm probably not gonna like the song. It's probably not my style. But dude, I'm more than happy to listen to it. And if you let me know where it is, I'll go. I'll go listen to it. And hopefully we can talk about it sometime. He goes, "Oh yeah, man, that'd be awesome. Just go on this site. You can you can find it right there. And come on back and we'll talk about it, right?" <sighs> let me t- let me tell you, there's a lot for us to talk about in relation to this song. But but my point my point is simply this. I. I'm, kind of rambling here, sorry, but as ridiculous as the song is, right, and as twisted and distorted this man's perspective of reality and life is, he's not beyond the saving power of the gospel. And like, whatever I'm seeing on the outside, the shell of the man Right, the, the tattoos and the pants hanging down below his bottom and, and whatever else you want to throw on there. Whatever I'm seeing on the outside cannot limit my perspective of how the gospel should apply to him on the inside. Right, It's like we have to be We have to be those who adopt Christ's perspective of sinners around us. Not those who look upon the shell and say, oh man, I don't think so. I'm not engaging with that person with the gospel. Who knows how they're going to respond? You know what? You don't know how they're going to respond. Maybe you share Christ with them and they're saved. Wouldn't that be glorious? But how often do we act like the disciples? Rather than seeing through the external shell. the person on the inside, we're just offended even at the thought of talking with them. You know, Jesus didn't come just to save people who we think look like they're worthy of being saved or who we would like to see saved. Jesus, Jesus came to take those who are among the most despised of a society to restore them for his glory because that's what magnifies his great power the most. He didn't come to save the righteous, did he? He came to save sinners. Like the disciples, we need to be rebuked and we need to enter into our master's calling and start seeing people the way he does. Start engaging and interacting with them the way he does. And that leads us to a second uh, thing that we see about the spiritual dullness of the disciples here. We not only see their spiritual dullness in connection with their response to this woman and Jesus speaking with her, but we also see their spiritual dullness by how they interacted with the city of Samaritans. Again, in verse 38, Jesus said, I sent you into that city to reap a harvest. I sent you to reap where you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into that labor. But I've sent you into that city to reap. Is that what the disciples did whenever they entered into the city of Sychar? All evidence points to the fact that no, they did not. You know, you remember in, maybe in John chapter 1, verse 41... How excited and enthusiastic these disciples were to tell each other that they had found the Messiah. They were running around, finding each other, traversing great distances just to say, Hey man, come on, we found the Messiah, come back with us and see for yourself. Well, it seems that during their time in Sychar, they didn't share that reality with anyone in the city. What happened to their joy? In finding the Messiah? What what happened to their conviction and their zeal to tell other people about Jesus? It could have been their prejudice against the Samaritans for sure. It could have been because they were Jewish people. They thought it beneath them to engage the Samaritans with the gospel of the Jewish Messiah. But at the very least... We can confidently say that they did not interact with the people of of this Samaritan city with the fact of the Messiah's arrival because they were distracted. They were so focused on physical aspects of life that they missed the importance of spiritual and eternal realities relating to those who were all around them. What were they focused on? They were focused on purchasing bread. I got to get bread. Jesus is hungry. Let's find a place to get bread. Let's get out of this city and get it back to Jesus. And even when they come back, what's their focus? It's, Rabbi, you need to eat. Eat this food. Obviously, they were distracted by the temporal circumstances around them. And that kept them blind to the spiritual needs that were being presented. I think we can all be like that, can't we? We go to the store, we go to a restaurant, we're in a park, and what are we most focused on so often? We're focused on the food, right? Whether or not the waiter or waitress got our order right, whether or not the cook made it right. Oh man, I didn't order pickles on this burger. You take this back, give me something else. Focused on the stuff that we need to buy whenever we go into the store, right? We got our shopping list. We're going into the store and we're just focused on getting what's on that list, getting to the the checkout counter and getting out of the store as quickly as possible. We got that schedule that we need to keep. We, We have that fun that we're trying to have. We don't have time to be distracted with the spiritual realities and needs of the people around us i got my own agenda. i got my own life. i got the things that I want to do. I've got the stuff that I need to buy. I don't, I don't have time. I don't have time to stop and help change that woman's flat tire. She's got AAA, right? She's got a cell phone. She can call somebody. i got to get to work, man. So often we are, we are so consumed by the false realities of lesser things that we fail to recognize the real harvest that's all around us. And it's shameful. We should be ashamed of that fact, that we are more focused on our appetites than we are upon spreading the good news of the kingdom of Christ. What is our God in that moment? What can we say with surety? We must say what Paul says in Philippians 3. Our God is our bellies. We are ruled by our appetites. We're not ruled by Christ. You know, maybe what's even worse than the fact that we are focused and consumed by the false realities of lesser things, what's even worse is that when the Lord does actually make it abundantly clear that we should speak the gospel to someone, we choose not to. You feel that fluttering in your stomach and you know something's unique about this interaction. I, I need to speak with this person about Jesus. And you say, no, no, no. What's this person going to think? How am I going to approach this person with the truth? It's going to be so offensive to them. I'm going to drive them away. My friend, where where are you going to drive them? Aren't they already going to hell? Do you believe that? Most of us don't. If we were honest, we would never say that openly. But if we're honest and we look at the way we actually interact with the lost people around us, we have to say, I don't think they're going to go to hell. we're more worried about our reputation and the way we are perceived by the world. You know, maybe even worse than that. So often we can, be, we can be so focused on ourselves and our own agendas and our own delights and our own desires that we aren't even asking God to open doors among the lost so that we can speak the gospel to them. We're so spiritually dull. We're so, we're so numbed to the spiritual realities all around us that we're not even presently engaging with God, begging Him for an opportunity to speak the gospel. I guarantee you, you start walking through your days every single day saying, Lord, in this moment, give me an opportunity with this person. Help me understand how to bridge the gap between the now and the gospel. Help me bring the good news of Christ to this person so that he or she can hear. If we start living like that, we're going to have an abundance of opportunities to spread the good news of the gospel. But we don't do that very often. And you know, that needs to make us ask ourselves a question. If I truly have found the hope of the Messiah, then why am I so hesitant to say anything about it to others? If my heart has truly been gripped with the realities of judgment that's coming... The fact that I am a sinner who stands condemned before the holy presence of God apart from a Savior, apart from a mediator who can come and step in between me and the wrath of God that I deserve. We haven't been gripped by the reality that Jesus is that mediator proven by His righteous life, demonstrated in His powerful resurrection, proven by the Father ascending Him into heaven, raising Him up into heaven and sitting Him at the Father's right hand to rule on high. If that that hasn't gripped us enough to cause us to open our mouths and preach the truth to the lost, then we must ask ourselves, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that Jesus is Lord That he is king of kings, and he is Lord of lords. If I really believe that, why are so many other things seemingly more important? Is it merely because we're distracted? We're distracted Christians, and we're setting our minds on things that are seen at the expense of setting our minds on things that are unseen? Or is it deeper than that? Is it that if we're being honest, we have not yet discovered the joy of finding Jesus, the Messiah, for ourselves? Maybe our faith in Jesus is nothing more than something that we've learned by rote and tradition. It's not something that's genuine and real in our own personal experience. You know, you can't share something with other people that you yourself don't possess. No matter how you try to share it, it's always going to come out flat and empty because there's no substance behind it. You know, Jesus says in verse 38, listen, I sent you into that city to start reaping a harvest of souls and all you had to do, all you had to do was lift up your eyes and see the harvest. Yeah, you know, this was such a teaching moment for Jesus' disciples. Because this, what Jesus lays out for them here, becomes the, the controlling, all-consuming reality of their ministry from that point forward. Jesus, in other words, Jesus is radically changing the way that these disciples looked at the world with this one statement. Lift up your eyes and see that the harvest is white. It's ready to be reaped. Go reap it. The fields of the world are ripe. They were were white and ready to be harvested. All they had to do was look and get to reaping. Now, something that I want us to focus on as we come to a close is what this passage reveals to us about the way Jesus views the world. To look upon a world of sinners and say, lift up your eyes and see the harvest would have been a radical shift in the way that the disciples were used to looking at the world. not only only in relation to the Samaritans, but, but far more than that in relation to the rest of the Gentiles. To look upon the world and say, listen, the world is white. It's ready for harvest. Go harvest. Go reap. Would have been something that disciples never would have thought the Messiah would be telling them. See, when Jesus spoke these words to his disciples the world had reached the height of human civilization up to that point. In fact, you could argue that we haven't haven't gone very much further than that in many areas. Rome had achieved as as close a thing to global peace as had been seen at any other time in world history since the Tower of Babel. The Pax Romana, right? The Peace of Rome. The world had reached the limits of human achievement through philosophy and culture and even imperial devotion. Right? So they, they were unified under this government, the, the known world at that time. Unified under this one government, the Empire of Rome. And what were the results of all that human achievement? What had humanity achieved for itself through all of its accomplishments? Well, if we just look back through the annals of history, we can see that what they had accomplished consisted of all manner of sensual depravity, ruling in the streets, barbarous gladiatorial games where the crowds of common people could come and get their fill of bloodshed and violence without actually having to enact it themselves Hey, by the way, what movies do you watch on TV? Is it comparable to that? The desire may be the same thing. Barbarous gladi- gladiatorial games. Early expressions of global imperial worship. Worshipping a man as God. Hailing him as curios, as the Lord. Yeah. Ethnic prejudice, homosexuality, and cult prostitution, famines, wars, religious confusion. In essence, 2 Timothy 3.2 describes it as a society so decadent that the supreme principle that ultimately ruled humanity was a commitment to be a lover of self, that everything must serve its purpose in serving me or else it has no good purpose. All the advancement of human achievement had resulted in a world of broken homes and suffering and illness and injustice and racial prejudice and and of real oppression of women and taking advantage of the poor and the helpless. A world so heartless and depraved that parents legally abandoned their unwanted children in the streets at night so that they would cry themselves to death. Now imagine not only being the parent who abandoned your child out in the street to cry itself to death, imagine being the neighbor who had to listen to it until the child stopped crying. How depraved. And that that would be backed by a government as something good and right. So much for man's achievement. Now most of us would look upon a world like that and we would think, it's hopeless, (laughs) That's a hopeless world. What can be done in a world like that? That's not a harvest. That's a field of rotten weeds that just needs to be burned up, and we need to start over, right? Like what the Lord told Moses. Moses, get back. I will destroy the whole people, and I will make a people out of you. Well, that's exactly what everyone, including these disciples, thought that the Messiah was going to do when he came into the world. Destroy the nations, right? Kick butt, take names. He's going to come and tell the world, show the nations what's what. But when Jesus looked at this depraved and broken world, he said, Lift up your eyes and see the harvest. The world is my field, in other words. And all the brokenness and the depravity and the suffering and the injustice in the world simply proves that the fields are ready to be harvested. Think about it. If Jesus is looking out on a world that is manifesting such depravity as that, and he's saying, that's my field, go get my my fruit, go gather it in for eternal life. You see what he's saying there? This is as much as man can achieve if left to himself. This is it. This is all they can do. This is the best utopia they can create. And they all know that it has failed. Boy, doesn't that make our perspective of the world change when you see it in the right light, all the suffering, all the injustice, the depravity that manifests in the world is simply a manifestation that nothing the world can do can fix its problem. Jesus is the answer. And he looks out on the world and he says, that's my harvest. It's ready. It's it's prepped. It's already been made ready to receive the good news of the Messiah who has arrived. Therefore, the time to reap for the glory of God is right now. Lift up your eyes and look. You know, just by by passing through this, the proof of that reality is seen right in verse 36. Jesus says, even now, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering in fruit for eternal life. Even at that moment, the Samaritans were on their way out to see Jesus. And that was proof that the world was ripe and ready to be harvested for the glory of Christ. You know, what Jesus was calling the disciples to do was to recalibrate their spiritual eyes so that they could see the world the way Jesus saw the world. They had to lift their eyes and see and become aware of the world's ripeness. They had to train themselves to think about the world in a right manner, not according to their own fleshly, carnal desires and expectations, but according to Jesus' viewpoint. And then they had to have the presence of, mind, presence of mind to go meet that world with the sickle of the good news of the gospel. Now, the disciples had missed that opportunity. They didn't take advantage of it, but that didn't mean that Jesus lost the harvest. And we're going to look at that next week. He made provision through this woman to gather in those souls that were given to him by his father. If you're not willing to go do the work, Jesus is going to find someone else to do it. Right? But let me end here by asking this question and talking a little bit after that. Has the world changed from what we see of the world that Jesus was addressing at this time? I know we are prone to think that it has. We're prone to think that we've made so much advancement in the world, that we are so, more, so much more refined than those barbarians and heathens back in the day. But, beloved, if you look at the world and you compare the world that is now to the world that was then, there is no difference. Just because we have different ways of expressing our sinfulness doesn't mean that the essence of that sinfulness has changed or that the world has changed. I mean, just think about it. The governments of the world still believe that they are the answer to humanity's problem. And all that the people need to do is fall in line with what Papa government tells us to do. The weed of prejudice still abounds in our society, does it not? And in fact, that weed is furthered in its growth and and its impact by doctrines like cultural Marxism and critical theory. Our sexual perversion, sexual perversion still runs rampant in our streets, only now we have greater medical sophistication to bolster our perversion. And rather than keeping prostitution relegated to the temple, we have invited sexual perversion into our libraries and into our schools and we allow it to pervert the minds of our children through television and internet. And oh, we still murder our children. And we protect it by deceiving people into believing that really it's an issue of women's rights and reproductive freedom. How twisted must we be? How self-centered must we be to be able to justify the murder of an innocent child for the sake of our freedom? It's sick. And you know, as the world continues to reject the reality of God and seeks to live contrary to His holy law for our existence, all we will see is a return to a depraved and barbarous society. What we were, in other words, we will only be returning to what we were prior to the impact that the gospel had upon our society. And you want proof of that? Just look at what the House did on January 11th. 210 Democrats. Refusing even to vote for a bill that would provide medical care to a baby who had survived the horrors of abortion. Are we not lifting up our hands and letting the child scream out in the street until it dies? Boy, we're no different. We're no different. Now that smugness... And deception will be dealt with in the day of God's vengeance. And we take hope in that reality. But, beloved, the good news about the fact that the world has not changed is the fact that the world has not changed. The same answer Jesus gave for the world that was then is the answer for the world that is now. As tempting as it is for us to look despairingly upon the world, Jesus tells us that all the brokenness so vividly displayed all around us is simply proof that the world is ripe and ready for harvest. It's still broken, it's still confused, it's still hopeless and misguided, and that means that it's still harvest time. It's still time to take up the sickle of the gospel and go reap. Jesus looks upon us and he says the same words he spoke to the disciples. I sent you to reap. Are you reaping? Do you know the power of the gospel enough in your own soul to wield that gospel with power upon the world? Only Jesus can make it effective for salvation but are you communicating it out of a a real knowledge of Jesus. It's still time for Christ to reap the nations. The question is, are we going to go out into the world as his ordained reapers? You know, the mission field out there, yes, foreign missions, we must always be pressing to move into the realm of foreign missions, but we also must keep perspective that the harvest is at the same time right here. It's right here. It's right next door to you at home. It's, 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 the harvest is at the desk sitting right next to you at work. It's in our cities. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our homes and among our friends. It's in the workplace and among our families. All around us, we see the evidence that it's harvest time. We see broken homes, don't we? We see divided families. We see sexual sin and perversion. We see false ambition of secular humanism and murder of children. Is it not harvest time? Beloved, as disciples of Christ, we have the responsibility to enter into his task. We have the responsibility to adopt his purpose for coming into this world and continue to seek to have it accomplished. To see souls gathered in for eternal life. These disciples missed their opportunity in this moment. You and I have missed many opportunities in our lives. But let's learn from that and strive to make the most of each opportunity the Lord brings our way in the future. Right? Those opportunities are going to be today. Prepare yourself to meet that moment well for the glory of Christ. It's going to be tomorrow. Prepare yourself. Let's be faithful reapers for the glory of Christ. Our Lord God, we we do pray that you would give us eyes to see the world and to behold its whiteness and its readiness for harvest. And Lord, we beg you, please give us grace. Give us strength and wisdom and compassion and love to join with you In wielding the sickle of the gospel and seeking to gather in souls for life eternal, Lord, no matter what we do, it's all in vain if your if your power does not accompany us. So, Lord, please send us with that powerful message of the gospel, and we pray by your Spirit that you would gather in saints, gather in souls, and make them saints for the glory of your name. We pray. All to the glory of your name, Father. For Christ's sake, amen. Hear the, hear the benediction from Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. In seeing the crowds, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. If you belong to Christ, in some way, you have entered into that work of harvesting. now you go out in the name of Christ and do it faithfully for the glory of his name and in the peace of his name, amen.